The only monster here is the gambling monster that has enslaved your mother. I call him Gamblor, and it's time to snatch your mother from his neon claws! Marge, we need to talk. You're spending too much time at the casino, and I think you may have a problem. I won $60 last night. Woohoo! Problem solved! You unlock this door with the key of imagination. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance of things and and ideas. Hi, and welcome back to Sound, Sight, and Mind, the podcast where three brothers explore the classic Twilight Zone three episodes at a time. I'm Chris Andrade, and here with me, as always, are my brothers Ken. Hello. And Steve. Hello. And tonight we're looking at uh, what we call All Bets Are Off, three episodes dealing with gambling, wagers, uh, games of chance and skill, uh, pitting one against another. We're going to begin with a classic episode starring Jack Klugman and Jonathan Winters, perhaps better known as a comedian, uh, but an episode called A Game of Pool. It was from the third season, uh, episode five, and originally aired October 13th, 1961. Uh, It was directed by George Kulik, who directed Playhouse 90, several Twilight Zone episodes, and also uh, the classic TV movie, one of the ones that guys are allowed to cry at, Brian's Song, (laughs) uh, the uh, classic football movie with Billy D. Williams. Um, It was written by George Clayton Johnson, who uh, co-wrote Logan's Run. He uh, wrote the Twilight episode Kick the Can, which we looked at earlier, and also wrote the first broadcast episode of Star Trek. Not the first one that was filmed, but the first one that made it to air, uh, The Man Trap, also known as the one with the salt vampire. So uh, some some notable writing and direction there. Uh, the music is uh, stock uh, music and some uncredited work by Jerry Goldsmith, also associated with Star Trek, as well as lots of other uh, Hollywood composition. The episode opens with the shot of a pool table. Someone's made a banked shot to sink an eight ball, and then we see... Uh, Jack Klugman as Jesse Cardiff, and he's in this pool hall. It appears to be after hours. He's the only one there, and he's uh, he gives a congratulatory little yes at sinking that shot, and he's saying, look at that, the perfect technique, the perfect English, you know, you know, spin on the ball, and he's kind of monologuing. Then he starts bitching about Fats Brown. Anyone ever wants to talk about his Fats Brown? I'm the best. Oh, but you should have seen Fats Brown when he was here. He's been dead for 15 years. And we see that his picture is hanging on the wall of the pool hall. And it's Jonathan Winters. And uh, Klugman, as, as Cardiff, says he'd give anything for just one game to show he can beat him. And we have the opening narration from Rod Serling. Jesse Cardiff, pool shark. The best on Randolph Street, who will soon learn that trying to be the best at anything carries its own special risks in or out of the Twilight Zone. So uh, what we see is we see this apparent afterlife. We get this overhead shot of a pool table uh, surrounded by or resting on clouds. And we hear a voice paging, a female voice paging over uh, kind of an enunciator, uh, paging Fats Brown, saying he's needed on Randolph Street. And uh, Jonathan Winters kind of resignedly picks up his, his pool cue, puts on his hat, and heads out. And next thing we know, he is materializing in the pool hall. And uh, Jesse Cardiff there is is notably shaken to see Fats Brown there and is wondering what's going on. And he tells him, well, you called me and you want to play me? Here you go. And he's saying, this is a little weird. He says, oh, I see. You like to play with fire, but you don't like to cook, which I think is just a great line. <laughs> But eventually he talks him into saying, okay, well, let's, let's put your money where your mouth is. What's, you know, what are the stakes for this game? And uh, Jesse Cardiff throws some money down on the table and uh, Fats Brown says, you know, use your head, boy. What good is that to me? So he says, so here are the stakes. It's life or death. You win, you live. I win, you die. And uh, it takes a while for things to get going um, Brown keeps egging him on, saying he's second rate, he's lacking nerve. And uh, 
you know, you aren't serious about the game. And Carter says, what do you mean I'm not serious about the You know how many hours I've been here? I haven't read a book. I haven't dated a girl. I haven't done anything that would take me away from the game. And eventually he agrees to play with life or death stakes. They agree to play 14-1 continuous, also known as straight pool. It used to be the most common form of competitive pool before nine ball became more common. Um, they agree that it's going to be a 300-point game to win, which is, uh, that's a, a marathon right there, because every ball that's sunk is one point. So, you know, 15 balls, so you're looking at essentially 20, uh, 20 games of running the table. Uh, so they flip a coin to see who breaks, and in this uh, game, a player who breaks is uh, said to have a disadvantage. Um, it's a form of pool in which, like most competitive pool, you have to call your pocket, say which ball's going where before you make the shot. But in this variation, uh, that's true even on the break. Usually the break in, you know, in casual pool, you're just breaking up the ball, scattering them all over the table, you take it from there. But here you have to either sink a called ball on the break or the alternative is the cue ball and then two other balls have to each touch a cushion on the break. So it's already establishing this is a tricky thing. So uh, Jonathan Winter's character, Brown, appears to lose the toss, so he has to break and immediately shakes up Jack Klugman's character by executing this very tricky uh, shot where he has the cue ball glance off, bounce off the cushion, and two side balls do, but only one of them then comes bouncing back almost into formation. So essentially, one ball's moved a couple inches, and that's it, leaving him with really nothing. So now uh, Cardiff Klugman is at the disadvantage. So it's it very quickly becomes a defensive game, and they go and they play, and uh, for a while uh, Cardiff takes an early lead, but. Uh, Brown tells him, oh, it's the, you know, the game's still young and keeps talking at him and, and kind of distracting him. And, and, uh, Klugman's character is just getting more and more agitated the entire time. And we've got the trademark Twilight Zone sweat beating on his forehead, uh, <laughs> as he goes. And then finally it gets to the point where the score stands at 299 to 296. And, uh, and Brown is, is still kind of taunting him a little, saying, you know, you think, you know, you've spent your whole life trying to be better. He says, but, you know, I was the best, and I had a life, too. I went out and did stuff, and uh, Klugman misses his next shot. He's getting agitated, but in the end, it, it comes down to a single ball, and uh, Fats Brown misses his last shot and leaves it set up for a really easy win. And now he's sweating, too, and uh, Cardiff calls him out on it and says, hey, you're, you know, how come you're sweating now? Ah, see, it's not so, uh, you know, you know, you're not going to be the greatest thing. Where he goes, eh, don't assume, you know, it's not all you think it is. And uh, Klugman sinks the shot, wins the game, and then Brown thanks him for beating him. And uh, and Klugman's character, Cardiff, you know, gets angry. He's like, oh, you're just a sore loser. You know, you, you know what do you know? And then Brown disappears. And then what we see is that Cardiff winds up eventually in the same spot as we first saw Fats Brown. There he is in his cloud-surrounded pool table with a voice paging him, Jesse Cardiff. Uh, there's someone challenging you, and we get to the closing narration. Mr. Jesse Cardiff, who became a legend by beating one. But it was found out after his funeral that being the best of anything carries with it a special obligation to keep on proving it. Mr. Fats Brown, on the other hand, having relinquished the champion's mantle, has gone fishing. These are the ground rules in the Twilight Zone. So it's it's almost the old, uh, you know, the old West gunslinger thing. Is once you establish yourself as the best, now you've got to watch your back for the uh, the next young punk trying to beat you. Only here, it's kind of the punishment of the afterlife. The legends have to keep defending their legendary status. So what did you guys think of this one? I think this episode is fantastic. I love Jonathan Winters. I love Jack Klugman. I think um, the script serves them both very well. And for a bottle episode where they're just stuck in that room, um, it's all dependent on their banter back and forth. And I think they're just so 
great to watch. And it's the way it's shot too. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you're always kind of like looking at their faces. You're not looking so much at the pool table. It's, we're always seeing right. their reactions to stuff. And, sweat. Don't forget the sweat. And so much sweat, <laughs> all the sweat. Um, and yeah, even early on, I was like, huh, they're even uh, pouring the sweat all over Jonathan Winters, which is interesting. But um, I thought uh, it's just, it's great acting. And it's funny, I, I watched this episode with my wife and she loved it except for the ending mm-hmm. where she she was just like that's it that's that's the end to that episode because it really is really riveting and then ends with you know the kind cla- of a cliche yeah the yeah. classic serling like twisty wah, wah. well i want to come back to that yeah um because there's a little yes. little interesting note there right um at this point uh jack klugman had already done 12 angry men um in which he played a much more sympathetic character. He is so thoroughly unlikable in this. It's like you you kind of get his frustration mm-hmm. and and yeah. he's a but he's a pathetic character. Yeah, you I don't know? see and, him, and I don't see him as much as being unlikable as just as somebody who's almost to the point of almost to the point of madness from his his mania about being the best at pool. Uh, and right, that's why I, so I enjoy this abrasive. a lot because of the back and forth too, because there's so many nice little moments like when, uh, when Fats is telling him, you know, about how you need to go out and live. It's like, sure, I was the best at pool, but I also traveled the world and yeah, I've, I've made love and I've gone, done, you know, gone fishing and done all this other th- stuff. That was a, that was a great line. And, uh, Ken, if you can grab the audio on that. Yeah. Let's play that. You know something, Jesse? There's more to life than this pool hall. It isn't right you're being all cooped up in here like this. You ought to get out a little, see what's going on. You didn't get to be the best sitting on a park bench. Spent a lot of time with that cue in your hands. Of course I did. But I took time out to live, too. I've been places where they never heard of billiards. Fifteen ball in a corner park. I may not look the part, Jesse, but I made love, walked uphill, swam in the ocean. When I think of the wonderful things there are to see and to do, it hurts me. Yeah. To see you rotting your life away in this miserable, dark hall. You're lying. You're trying to distract me. That's a lousy thing to do. Jonathan Winters was already well-established as a comedian by this time. He had done... Um, he had actually gotten his start because he entered a talent contest to win a, a wristwatch because he had uh, lost one. Um... And so his wife said, oh, look, they're, they're having this contest where you can win a, a wristwatch for talent. You can do something. And he, he went in and, and uh, did like a little comedy routine and became a radio DJ and uh, then had his own TV show. And he was known for doing off-the-wall voices and characters and, and crazy stuff. He inspired Johnny Carson, Robin Williams, mm-hmm. um, made guest appearances on Scooby-Doo, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but um, but he was already well-established as, as this, this really ahead-of-his-time comedian, and here he plays it just totally straight and is so cool and so measured through the whole thing. Well, this also came out of... This came at a very interesting time for him because this was after he had been, um, like you said, a really successful comedian. He was a big road comedian, too, and he had had a nervous breakdown um, from the stress of his touring and being away from his family. So he actually took a break and for a while was hospitalized and under psychiatric evaluation. That's right. So um, this came kind of after that when he was coming out of that. And I think sort of like shifting gears away from being a touring comic and uh, taking on kind of different acting roles. And he had written Serling early on to say, I love the show and I want to be a part of it. And Serling actually had written him back um, a little bit later and said, you know, like, that's awesome. I, you need something perfect. I haven't forgotten about you, but you know, I would love to have you, but it's got to be the right thing. And then uh, this is the part that sort of kind of fell into place because uh, Johnson said he had written the part a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had envisioned him as this like bearded, uh, kind of more aloof man. And then Winters came in and just sort of 
made it his own and just killed yeah, it. Jo- Jonathan Winters has, in his performance, he has an, an intensity that is not, it's not the same type as what Jack Klugman is doing. Jack Klugman is doing very much the angry young man kind of thing. Although Jack Klugman always looks around 55 to me. I don't know how <laughs> I know, old he right? was when he was filming it, but he's always like 55. I know. Winters kept saying like, you're just a kid. And back when I was your age, I'm like, um, I have questions about that. <laughs> um, but Jonathan Winters has an intensity of his own, and it's just it's a very different kind of performance, but it, it carries so well, and it's such a nice balance. Let's see, Klugman was about 40 when this episode uh, was filmed, so... And yeah. uh, I was reading about the episode, and it it's so sad that this was not a time when uh, they saved everything that was cut, you know, for future uh, viewing, because apparently every time... Uh, Jonathan Winters made a flub and apparently it happened a lot especially early on because he was nervous about delivering the lines and also getting the the pool uh, you know shooting uh, moves down or at least looking authentic so every time he'd flub a line he'd just start riffing and go on for like 10 and 15 10 to 15 minutes and (laughs) apparently the crew apparently the crew was just in stitches just just watching him do this and it's just so sad that none of that you know all that extra footage was probably just you know melted down or whatever yeah tossing right i mean he was absolutely i mean Robin Williams was in awe of Jonathan Winter's improvisational skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's when when they worked together on Mork and Mindy. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of of the pool and getting the moose down, one of the thing that that I liked about this too is that the actual pool is very understated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a lot of dazzling trick shots. It's mm-hmm. not a lot of flashy. What you'd if they were to do this one, you know, today, you'd probably expect lots of oh, let's hop one ball over the other, let's spin around. There are some that clearly take skill to execute, but it's so much more just a mental game. And like the first shot that the that Winters makes, yeah, the the geometry of it, and as he's passing stuff through. But there's also some, you know. Fats Brown says, well, it's a combination of skill and luck and, you know, gamesmanship and all that. And and so there are, you know, there's even a couple what we'd think of as kind of like rookie mistakes, you know, scratching. You know, you go to make a shot and you mm-hmm. wind up sinking the cue ball and things. So it's it's much more about the interplay than about the, you know, let's impress with just how great these guys are. We're taking it on faith that they're both great pool players, but that's not what it's really about. Now, talking about that ending uh, that that disappointed your wife there. (laughs) Uh, Originally, in the ending, Jesse loses the game, Mm -hmm. but then finds that he's still alive. And he's like, wait, I thought this was life or death. And Fats explains, what you're going to die as all second raiders die. You're going to be buried and forgotten without me touching you. If you'd have beaten me, you'd have lived forever. And with that, uh, Fats disappears and Jesse vows to keep practicing until he's good enough to face him again. And uh, when they remade the episode uh, in the 80s version of The Twilight Zone, you have Isa Morales, who most people know is Richie Valen's brother in La Bamba. Mm-hmm. And Richie, <laughs> as Sleepwalk <laughs> plays over there. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, but Guys can played... cry at that part, too. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That's another. There we go. Um, But he played Jesse Cardiff then, and Maury Chaikin played uh, Fats Brown. But that that version actually used the original ending that Johnson had intended. I'm not sure why they changed it. I watched it uh, just the other day because I actually have the 80s uh, Twilight Zone series on DVD. Lucky Mm -hmm. you. Um, So I I watched it, and uh, George Clayton Johnson actually wrote the script for the the uh the remake also and i okay. think the reason he did is because even uh he was never wholly satisfied with the ending of the original and so he wanted to try the, you know as he originally conceived it doing that ending um it's an interesting idea um but as executed in the new one it might have been more powerful had it been executed uh by jack klugman and Jonathan Winters, but in the remake, it just there was nothing there, and part of it was because the performances were really not great. S. A. Morales was uh, trying to do the same angry young man, and while he certainly was younger than Klugman was, uh, it comes off really like high school drama. 
the lines oh, coming yes. out of his mouth. And uh, Maury Chaikin, who played Fats Brown, he's a character actor who's done a ton of TV and right. movies. Um, there's no personality really to his performance. He just he looks more like a mob heavy, like just kind right. of sullen and threatening. There's there's no uh, spark in there, and uh, that's really what I love about the original uh, episode is that there really is uh, a great uh, spark of the different personalities and the, and the banter yeah. back and forth. Winters brings almost a father figure to it. It's like, he's, he's trying to, to nudge Klugman, like, look, kid, this isn't what you want to do. Yeah. This isn't who you want to mm-hmm. be. There's a warmth there yeah. to, to that in spite of him needling him in Agreed. spite of him. You know, it's, and, and that even with the, the cliched ending, I think it, it just, it makes the episode work. It's another thing where, it's an interesting concept. Parts of it may be a little clunky, but the strength of the performances definitely carries it. So according to Johnson, the reason that the ending was changed, he was away filming and he found out that Serling was changing the ending because Serling had the idea for the scene of the heaven's waiting room the heaven. and mm-hmm. wanted okay. to do that bookend and thought that was, mm-hmm. that was cool. And it really bugged Johnson because he, he thought that was just kind of like a, a cheap, cute, classic Serling idea where he's like, Serling's going to Serling. But he, could, <laughs> um, but he couldn't do anything about it because he was away on set. And, and even apparently Buck Houghton called him and was like, this is happening and there's nothing you could do about it because you're not here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's why they did the original ending for the remake. And then Johnson didn't like that either uh, mm-hmm. because, like you said, the performances were kind of weak and it – and it just kind of died. And he always said he wanted his original ending because he really thought Klugman would slay doing that, like kind of shouting at the heavens defiant and speech. That's like classic Klugman. So then right. like many years later, Johnson went and hired a crew and filmed like a, uh, a version of his like original intact script in like a black box theater. Um, really? Yeah. And uh, I guess like video for that might be kicking around somewhere, but he used like college kids to do it. And he was just so aggro about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh it's almost a neat parallel with the obsession. You yeah. know? Yeah, like, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm going to be the best. This is going to be the best. That's kind of cool. Um, let's look at another uh, episode. That's one, one thing about all three of these episodes is that the central conceit is is very simple, is very one note, uh, compared to a lot of Twilight Zones where there's kind of convoluted layers of revelation or discovery or some twists and turns along the way. There's basically a central conflict. There's a wager. There's a bet. And it, it comes down to, to something between two people or uh, in this next one, between a person and an inanimate object. Uh, we're talking about this the episode The Fever, uh, which was a season one episode, episode 17, originally aired January 29th, 1960. Uh, it was directed by Robert Flory, uh, who's notable for directing the very first Marx Brothers feature film, The Coconuts, and uh, the 1932 version of Murders in the Rue Morgue, starring Bela Lugosi. Uh, it was written by Rod Serling. Uh, the music is stock music taken mainly from Jerry Goldsmith's jazz themes and Rene Garaguanc's Street Moods in Jazz, uh, which were also used in the episode The Chaser, which uh, we discussed in our Ironic Punishment episode. I was going to say, podcast. it's a lot of that Shadoobie stuff <laughs> we were making fun of. <laughs> it is. Um, it stars Everett Sloan as Franklin Gibbs. Uh, he was in Citizen Kane. He was very active in theater as an actor, a director, even a songwriter. His wife, Flora Gibbs, is portrayed by uh, Vivi Janice. She was a performer in the Ziegfeld Follies on Broadway and uh, once voiced Daisy Duck for her final classic cartoon appearance in 1954. Uh, and then there's a, a couple other, you know, ancillary characters. But uh, what we have is we have an establishing Las Vegas montage over music that is uh, suspiciously similar to Hooray for Hollywood, hmm. uh, kind of the shorthand for glitz and glamour. 
And uh, we see Franklin and Flora Gibbs. They're in Las Vegas for a three-day vacation, which has apparently been won by Flora for entering a slogan contest. And we get this exposition courtesy of a casino manager and a very snarky hotel photographer. Um, the the setup almost makes it look like it's going to be, you know, one of Ken's favorite comedic episodes. <laughs> um, but there's really no comedy in after after one joke by the photographer, there's nothing else in there that's funny except possibly unintentionally. Mm. Uh, and we have the opening narration. Mr. and Mrs. Franklin Gibbs. Three days and two nights, all expenses paid at a Las Vegas hotel. Won by virtue of Mrs. Gibbs's knack with a phrase. But unbeknownst to either Mr. or Mrs. Gibbs is the fact that there's a prize in their package neither expected nor bargained for. In just a moment, one of them will succumb to an illness worse than any virus can produce. A most inoperative, deadly, life-shattering affliction known as the fever. So, uh, Franklin is just sourpuss extraordinaire. Um, <laughs> right from the, the first, he's kind of got the raised eyebrow. Just, I mean, just perfect grumpy old man. And uh, his wife appears to be at least a good few years younger than him. And he clearly disapproves of any gambling or any frivolous spending. And he, in fact, berates his wife for trying to play a nickel slot machine. Uh, and uh, you know, he says, We've, we'll spend our three days and two nights in there because this is your idea of a fun time and because you insisted, but we will not be throwing our money away. And just as they're, they're going to head up to the hotel room, this drunk who's been at this one uh, one arm bend slot machine grabs Franklin and drags him. Here, you try this machine. It's tricky. It's not. And he's, he insists and he basically puts a silver dollar in his hand and pretty much forces him to put it in the machine. And uh, so, yeah, fine. So he goes and he, he pulls the lever, and lo and behold, it pays out a small number of silver dollars. And, and you see this kind of incredulous look on his face. And uh, Flora, who's uh, who did play her, her one nickel and one nothing, um, you know, says, oh, look, Franklin, you're lucky. And so he takes the silver dollars and says, well, we're not going to lose it back like these other fools here. We're going to, the Gibbs will not do that. And they go up to the room. But as he walks away, you hear this mechanical voice going, Franklin, <laughs> and it seems to be coming from we'll, the machine. We'll have to get a, a grab of that. I got, oh, yeah, I, got, I got that. Hang on. You got that. Oh, you got it right here? Um, so back in the hotel room, Franklin can't sleep and he seems to hear the machine calling his name. So he gets up and he tells Flora, he says, we can't keep this tainted money, uh, this dirty money smelling up our pockets. I'm going to go throw it away back into the machine and then we'll be done with it. So, uh, quick cut and sure enough, he is down there frantically playing this, this same slot machine, just chucking, you know, silver dollar after silver dollar into this machine, pulling the arm, and other people are starting to notice that he's been there a while. So Flora comes down and and says, it's getting awfully late, dear. And he's he's very irately telling her, he knows it's late, but this machine, this machine, this machine. And uh, it's, you know, he's, he's clearly uh, cashed several checks already to continue playing. Um, and Franklin just explodes at Flora when she calls him out. And he calls her a shrew and blames her for his bad luck. And then, and then he turns and talks about this inhuman machine that's, uh, that, 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 you know, taunts him. And uh, it's implied that he continues playing for several hours more. And then he calls for a drink of water saying he's, I've nearly got the machine licked. And Come to find out it's 8 o'clock in the morning now. He's still playing. Floor is still patiently waiting by him. People are starting to notice that, you know, this guy is really on the edge here. He's down to his last coin, and as he goes to put it in, the machine locks up. And he just absolutely flips his shit. <laughs> um, you know, starts screaming at the machine. It stole my dollar. He knocks the machine over. He kicks the thing, and it's... Uh, uh, 
a smaller machine than what we'd pick what we'd picture today in a, a modern you know Las Vegas setting. It actually sits on a tabletop, so he kicks the table over, and now casino security is dragging him away, and someone's saying, "Get him a doctor," and they they pick up the machine, hang an out of order sign on it, and then. Back in the hotel room, he sees a uh, vision of the machine calling him the Franklin, Franklin, and stalking him. And, and Flora's going, what's going on? There's nothing there. And and the machine is there, and it's walking on its table legs over to him, tottering to him all the time, <laughs> flashing and calling Franklin. And Flora's saying, believe me, there's nothing here, dear. And uh, backs him uh, you know, up, and, and he winds up committing suicide by backing himself right through the window. And uh, crashing down to the ground below. And then we see a sheriff, a doctor, and casino staff. They're all gathered around the body. And uh, casino manages, boy, I've never seen anyone hooked that badly. And uh, the sheriff says, yeah, his wife said he was up for 24 hours straight. And then they all disperse in a single silver dollar. You hear this little ka-chink sound. And the single silver dollar rolls to rest near the body. And then we see the machine standing there, apparently spitting back his his stolen dollar. And we get the closing narration. Mr. Franklin Gibbs, visitor to Las Vegas, who lost his money, his reason, and finally his life to an inanimate metal machine variously described as a one-armed bandit, a slot machine, or in Mr. Franklin Gibbs's words, a monster with a will all its own. For our purposes, we'll stick with the latter definition because we're in the twilight zone. So this one, it's kind of a weird episode in that it's got that that implied supernatural kind of thing going on with the machine calling his name and all that. But then it's also strongly implied that that's just a hallucination because his wife doesn't see it. But then there's the machine spitting the silver dollar back after everyone else has left. So first of all, the, the those people knows. are really blase about leaving a dead body just there. <laughs> yeah. uh, they'll be about to pick uh, him up. Let's go back. It's the one I've seen, but yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, we got to move product in there. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird episode, and it's not that the performances are horrible. You know, it's one of these these cautionary tale ones that, that just hits you over the head with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Um, there really isn't any twist. There's no real buildup. Um, but supposedly what this came from is that when Serling had signed the Twilight Zone, you know, uh, into production, he celebrated by spending a weekend in Las Vegas, and uh, and he himself got hooked on one of these one-armed bandit machines, and so decided to turn it into an episode. Uh, at least that's the uh, the story that uh, that goes. So maybe it was him. You know, he to him this was a really powerful personal. <laughs> You know, episode and to the watchers. I don't know about you. For me, this one was kind of, eh. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this one stinks. <laughs> I, I, I like two things in this in this episode. I like the weird Franklin sound just because it's weird, mm-hmm. right? And, and I like the final shot of the coin rolling to his hand, which yeah, is that then is cool. Which is then completely ruined by by the shooting back to the <laughs> yeah, standing in the middle of the parking lot, and and the fact that they even gave the machine a smile, I'm like, yes. oh my god, um, yeah, this one is just like beating you in the face with the moral tale, and Franklin is a, such a shitty character, such a terrible person, um, that I like, I don't, I don't know, he he has a gambling problem, he dies. So fine, he sucked, but then like that stinks for Flora because her world's you know turned upside down. Yeah. Right. Kind of feel and bad he was about so that. Awful to her, and then it was you know it wasn't even like oh he succumbed to this weakness of gambling. It was the hypocrisy. He was so anti-gambling, and then immediately you know got hooked and uh, yeah heavy-handed morality tale and i will say there was another visual moment that i thought was really nicely done was when after they initially win ten dollars or whatever from the machine and it's stacked up on the dresser in their hotel room and then there's that scene where they're 
on the bed and he keeps looking over to it and when he hears the Franklin voice and then he keeps seeing the stack get bigger and bigger. I oh, thought that right. I thought mm-hmm. that was a kind of neat little thing. Um I have a hard time with this episode because I really get upset when I go to a casino uh because I see the people there who are like this guy. Yeah, it's absolutely a real thing. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I have a hard time with that. I don't like going to casinos because I don't like thinking about that, like thinking about people actually, you know, ruining their lives, just dumping it down the drain, basically. Um, The few times that uh, I've gone to a casino, usually I'll bring like 20 bucks to gamble with. And once that's done, I'm like, well, I'm done. Let's go find the Krispy Krispy Kreme and get a donut. Um, and one time that I actually won a lot is when, uh, uh, my wife and I, before we were married, we were out in Vegas and, uh, on a slot machine, I actually won something like $150. And then I was, I was like Franklin after he wins 10 bucks. I was like, that's it. I'm done. Let's not (laughs) lose anymore. This just paid for all our meals. (laughs) So yeah, I have a, I have a hard time just, um, with this kind of theme because it it just upsets me that this is something that really happens. Now, as for the episode itself, yeah, it's kind of a turd. Um, <laughs> uh, aside from those like couple of visual moments and the 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 mechanized Franklin uh, call from the slot machine, I don't think it's a particularly strong episode. Um, did you guys read about how they made that sound of the slot machine? Yeah. No. Okay, tell us, enlighten us. So it was. It's pretty cool. Uh, They recorded the sound of coins running down a long metal chute. And they used, uh, I think they said they used quarters and dimes because they had uh, a brighter, more metallic sound, whereas nickels at the time uh, were duller because they were actually lead. Um, And then they had somebody, I believe they said they strapped miniature speakers onto his neck next to his esophagus. Um... And then when the sound was played through the speakers, the person who had the speakers strapped to his esophagus could open his mouth and mouth the word Franklin, and the sound would come out of his mouth, and it would be shaped like the word. He wasn't actually saying Franklin. So it's it's talk box technology. Yeah. It's the same thing yeah. that uh, Peter Frampton uses in Do You Feel Like We Do? <laughs> yeah. Only instead of a guitar as a tone generator, it's coins. That is fascinating and i did not know that and it's i think that's, that's a really cool. cool thing they happen upon to make that because that's definitely the the most interesting thing about this episode yeah by far <laughs> <laughs> um except for the fact that do we ever find out what the slogan was that flora came up with nope Nope. Oh, that's is, the mystery. It's never referred to again. But the uh, that casino manager, promotion manager guy is the bus driver from Will the Real Martian Stand Up? Oh, okay. One of the Twilight Zone players. <laughs> <laughs> Did not catch him on that one. Following through on uh, our, our depressing Twilight Zone uh, actor biographies. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Everett Sloan, who played Franklin Gibbs. Uh, committed suicide by barbiturate overdose at age 55. Um, wow. So it couldn't have been that long after this, apparently because he feared he was going blind. Huh. So here's a guy who had this very successful career as an actor, a director, a songwriter, and uh, then, you know, saw that, you know, this this thing stalking him, basically, and and ended it. So another of those weird, creepy little parallels. Man. Yeah. Do you suppose that this episode is why the windows in Vegas don't open anymore? <laughs> they watch it and said, oh, somebody's going to have a, have a crazy slot machine coming after him. We better make sure the windows don't open. Yeah, that must be it. I'm trying to lighten it up, <laughs> goddammit. I understand. How come Sorry, every, every podcast we end up talking about suicide? Uh, Hollywood, man. It's a tough gig. Um, well, actually, we're going to go now to our, our third episode that we're discussing, and this one is notable for being one of only three Twilight Zone episodes uh, from the original run with zero supernatural or sci-fi elements whatsoever. Uh, this is The Silence. It was season two, episode 25, originally aired April 28th, 1961. 
It was written by Rod Serling, directed by Boris Segal, who did uh, lots of anthology shows, but also directed The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, uh, which was based on uh, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend. Uh, stars Francho Tone as Colonel Archie Taylor. Uh, he had been nominated for an Oscar as midshipman Roger Byam in Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, starred Liam Sullivan as Jamie Tennyson. He was an actor and singer, began on Broadway, then did a, a whole bunch of TV series. Um, Jonathan Harris as Colonel Taylor's lawyer. He was Dr. Smith on oh, Lost the in pain. Space. <laughs> oh, the pain. That's, that's, the, that's the one. And uh, then kind of a cameo appearance by everyone's favorite aging domestic, uh, Cyril Delavanti as Franklin. He played yep. Marvin the butler in A Piano in the House. World's oldest man. Yeah, it was just so nice to see him again. It's like, oh, I love that guy. Get me that guy um, who looks like a raisin. <laughs> a raisin a with a classy it. British raisin. With an immaculate pompadour. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've got an establishing scene, and, and it's funny because the bulk of the, the, the characters are obviously American, but it is very much that old-style British gentleman's club. Um, a bunch of, of well-heeled uh, people in a club with lots of dark wood and sumptuous leather and drinks all around. And uh, we see one older member who is uh, this Colonel Taylor, who is visibly annoyed by this absolutely incessant prattle of this younger member, Jamie Tennyson. And uh, they they even have uh, shots of, of the younger guy talking and, and just talking about different people and, and why he doesn't like this one and that one and this deal and what you can make with this investments. And then they cut over to, to uh, Colonel Taylor and they put an, a reverb effect on the voice. Like it is just echoing and pounding in his brain, giving him a headache. <laughs> and, uh, and then we see him uh, talking to his lawyer saying, is this wager... Uh, legal. Lawyer says, well, no wagers are legal in this state. He says, but is anything in it against the law? He says, no, I can't see that anything's against the law. So he's carrying this piece of paper. We get Rod Sterling's opening narration. The note that this man is carrying across a club room is in the form of a proposed wager, but it's the kind of wager that comes without precedent. It stands alone in the annals of bet making as the strangest game of chance ever offered by one man to another. In just a moment, we'll see the terms of the wager and what young Mr. Tennyson does about it. And in the process, we'll witness all parties spin a wheel of chance in a very bizarre casino called the Twilight Zone. So, uh, fed up with, with Tennyson's insufferable chatter, uh, Taylor, after having conferred on the legality of this plan, makes a public wager. He calls Tennyson out and basically in front of the whole club, essentially says, you are a little upstart douchebag and you make me sick. <laughs> um, I mean, he's really not in those exact I was going to say, I don't remember the... <laughs> <Rod's>... <laughs> but that's that in Rod Sterling's narration. What yeah, we see is a douchebag. That, <laughs> but that's basically the gist of it is he's just like he says, you are you are young and brash and classless and, and I'm sick to death of hearing you. So uh, and he says, furthermore, I know that you have no money and all this prattle is because you're trying to secure loans for your harebrained investments. And so here's the deal. I will bet half a million dollars that you can't shut up for an entire year, that you cannot stay silent. And Tennyson is is kind of shocked uh, by by just this this public dressing down, and everyone in the club, of course, is is just silent at this. And uh, he says, "Well, you know, if if it were a different crowd and everything, I would ask you to step outside for." you know, talking like that. He says, but this is your club, your rules, whatever. And so he says, so what, what's the wager? He says, so we're, uh, I'll make arrangements uh, in the game room that hasn't been in use for some time downstairs. You will live in there. Uh, we'll set up microphones so we can monitor you. If you can stay silent for an entire year and we can check in on you at any time, then I will, I will give you $500,000, and if you can't, then you're out of here, you know, never darken this doorway again. Tennyson says, well, then I accept. Uh, I ask, of course, that you uh, write the check and place it on deposit in my name, witnessed by the club members, but Taylor says, this is my club, my credit and my honor are well known, I will do no such thing. 
And he says, okay, I see. It's, you know, your credit against my courage. I'll agree to the terms. And the group disperses. And uh, Taylor's lawyer there, Dr. Smith, <laughs> goes over to Tennyson and says, you know, this is not a capricious uh, undertaking here. Tennyson counters by yet another display of the Twilight Zone's uh, casual sexism that was so in vogue, <laughs> uh, saying, have you met my wife? You know, she uh, she spends at Tiffany's like it's the grocery store, you know, and uh, but says, but I unfortunately, I, you know, love her very much and I have a lot of debts. And so I'm, I'm going to do this. And in just a couple of days, he's going to go in here for a year. So uh, he does. He's he's put in this glass uh, enclosure. He's waited upon by uh, by the servant. Uh, and he is silent. He's there and he's marking off his days in the calendar. And it looks like kind of a, a nice little setup he's got for himself there. Um, but He's been in there for a few weeks, hasn't said a word. And so Taylor's lawyer takes the colonel aside and says, are you prepared to pay up? Because I think, you know, I think that this guy is going to beat you. He says, no, there's no way. And he says, well, do you have the money? And Taylor says he's insulted at the insinuation. But as months go by, uh, Taylor's starting to get a little nervous and talk Tennyson into capitulating. First, he offers him $1,000 to come out. Uh, then he says, uh, you know, if you just come out now, you know, this is this is kind of inhumane now. I'll, I could even give you five thousand dollars. And uh, then he starts getting really nasty and saying, boy, you haven't seen your wife in a long time. She hasn't even answered your notes. And he's dropping, you know, more and more insinuations that his wife may be playing around with other men and you know, trying to get. And uh, Tennyson is visibly disturbed but he doesn't break down. He just points at the calendar and he actually rides it out the whole way. And he comes out and everyone's kind of shocked and they see him emerge and the two men go face to face and he just puts his hand out for the money. At which point Taylor says, I'm afraid you have me at a disadvantage. I'm a fraud. He's suffered some serious reversals of fortune. He himself is practically destitute. Um, he says, I tried to offer you a thousand, five thousand, even that I would have had to really scrape together and, and suffer. And of course, uh, you've proved yourself to be the better man and I will resign uh, from the club. You know, you won't have to, to suffer my presence. And other people are saying, why isn't he speaking? Why won't he still speak? And Tennyson takes a paper out of his pocket and scribbles a note and passes it to Taylor, who reads it. And he says that. Knowing I couldn't keep silent on my own, before I went in, I had the nerves to my vocal cords severed. And Tennyson pulls back his scarf to reveal the surgery scars. So then we have the closing narration. Mr. Jamie Tennyson, who almost won a bet, but who discovered somewhat belatedly that gambling can be a most unproductive pursuit, even with loaded dice marked cards, or as in his case, some severed vocal cords. For somewhere beyond him, a wheel was turned, and his number came up black 13. If you don't believe it, ask the croupier, the very special one who handled roulette in the Twilight Zone. This one I found to be pretty effective. You know, again, it's it's kind of a, not exactly cliched, but it's the twist in this one is very O. Henry-esque. The man who loves to talk more than, uh, you know, more than anything else. Uh, and who's called out for being dishonorable, basically tries to cheat on this wager, although there was nothing that said he couldn't do it. There was no reason that he couldn't, uh, you know, enforce his own silence. But uh, it's it's well handled in terms of the interplay between the characters and uh, the, the lawyer character, uh, you know, Dr. Smith there, actually makes a really nice go-between, even though the primary drama is between Taylor and Tennyson. It's the interactions with him that kind of show up the character development of the two. Um, the closing narration, again, kind of just warning against gambling in general. I don't know if this was, uh, you know, what, what may have prompted Serling to go with, uh, with that again. I thought, I thought it kind of stood on its own without, without being a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. I just think he wanted to hear himself pronounce the word croupier. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be, that is a cool word, croupier. Um, but it's, that to me was, was was kind of a downer after the strength of the other one because it's 
it's interesting in that you wind up kind of rooting for the guy you were rooting against in the beginning. You you sort of sympathize with Taylor in the beginning that he's just, oh God, this this guy is so obnoxious and uh, I, you know, I can't stand it anymore in here. I've got the wherewithal. Let's let's just have some fun and make him shut up for a while. Mm-hmm. It's mean spirited clearly, and it's you know, it's not nice, but he clearly doesn't think the guy's gonna make it. And the fact that the Tennyson character is willing to do what he does, to have, you know, his vocal cords severed, shows you, you know, what dire financial straits he was in and how important this was to him because this is a permanent thing. Yeah, but man, that wife is just won't stop spending. <laughs> well, yeah, there's <laughs> that. women. Yeah. Yeah. Women of the 1960s. Although they do soften it somewhat by saying, but, you know, unfortunately, I'm deeply in love with her. So, you know, they, it, at least there's that. But, yeah, it's, it's, that's a little bit distasteful, certainly. Um, it's funny because, Steve, just like you with the, the last episode, you said this bothers you. Mm-hmm. Um, as you guys know, although our listeners probably don't, uh, a couple weeks ago, I had spinal cord surgery to correct a, a herniated disc in my cervical spine. And when I went for with my first uh, consultation with the neurosurgeon, he said, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a teacher. He says, what do you teach? And I said, uh, choir. He goes, oh, so you need your voice. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he went, hmm. <laughs> what do you mean? He's like, well, the nerves that control the vocal cords are in roughly the same place as where we have to be rooting around to do this. So I just I have to tell you that we'll be careful. But um, and and then, you know, that probably scared me more than anything else, because I had to think it's like, well, I am in constant pain right now. This is this is a necessary procedure. But it does run the risk of me never being able to use my voice again. And how would I function as a teacher? And could I do it? Sure, there are ways I could do it. And, uh, you know, there there are things I could do. But, and, you know, I but I trust the people and I know that they've come a long way. And it turns out they have ways of monitoring this now and all that. But some of my colleagues are like, what are you going to do? What are you, are you nervous? Are you nervous? What are you? Hmm. And, um, like, well, I wasn't until you kept harping on it. Um <laughs> But it's I, I now have a scar that almost exactly matches the one that they put on uh, Liam Sullivan in the in the episode when he pulls off that ascot. Uh, it's in exactly the same place. It's right. So they, they did their homework there. Um, you know, it's slightly on the left side of the neck and, and all that. But, uh, the, you know, the 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 thinking about what it would be to be silenced forever, um, I think, hit me. A little harder when I saw this episode just because of of what was proposed to me that this may be a consequence of what I was going to do. Is this a chance you're willing to take? And essentially it's, you know, you're betting one thing. Uh, For me, it wasn't a financial thing. It was a relief from pain thing against possibly the ability to talk or the ability to sing. Um, so that you know, for for me, maybe that that was why this episode hit me uh, a little more, and I thought it was a little more successful than maybe you guys did. Well, I think it's a, I think it's definitely a, a well done episode. Like you said, it's got very uh, very O Henry kind of ending to it, um, and again, this is another one that I feel would also have worked in a setting of say like Alfred Hitchcock presents or something. It's, you know, nothing supernatural or, or sci-fi about it, mm-hmm. but a, just a nasty little twist and some, um, you know, a couple of characters who, as the story progresses, especially Colonel Taylor, like you said, in the beginning, you're sort of on his side, but as it goes on, he just keeps seeming nastier and nastier as he starts slipping in little asides to, uh, Tennyson about his wife and, you know, things like, I've seen your wife around town with another man, Tennyson. Yeah, like, that's... Your wife hasn't come to visit. That's when it really gets, uh... It got interesting to me to mm-hmm. once you start seeing that little bit of desperation at play, because he really mm-hmm. is, like, vicious with those, those asides about the wife. And, uh, I was already sort of on Tennyson's side just because the way that Taylor dresses him down in front of that whole group of people, you just, like... You could feel yeah. that sort of yeah. embarrassment. It's so cringy. Um, so you're just kind of like, ah, oh, F these 1% a 
a holes <laughs> and their, <laughs> right. their mustaches. Um, so I do wish they gave Tennyson something a little bit more, even even if like his financial dire straits were were self inflicted in a way of like bad business making or something. Mm. Just the nineteen sixties. My wife likes to shop at Tiffany's. Is just kind of like that, that yeah. doesn't do you any favors. Yeah. But I think the episode. Um, I think the episode is is still pretty fun, even though it does kind of leave you with a, a no one no one wins scenario. Yeah. What what's missing is the five minutes after when after he reveals that his vocal cords were severed when he tackles Taylor and starts slamming his head against the ground, <laughs> yeah. making inarticulate animal noises. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, you'd hope that all these other rich guys in the club would maybe, you know, have a little whip around and, and say, well, let's, let's help the guy out. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, you, you can see the discussions. Yes. But was that sportsmanlike of him to go and have that done? I mean, that wasn't what anyone expected. You know, right. it's, it, it is one of those, those kind of studies of human nature. Like what's, who's, who is the bad guy here? Who's the victim here? Mm-hmm. How much of it is self-inflicted? And where did they get contractors to put up a glass apartment that's in one day in one day, in one day. Was... <laughs> and what back alley surgeon well... is severing nerves to vocal cords <laughs> just because yeah there's that um of <laughs> oh, the 1960s these were crazy times uh, the contractors are more reliable the surgeons back alley surgeons were a dime a dozen yeah. you know yeah um so I've got a question for you guys because I didn't notice it until after I'd read this trivia about the episode and then I watched it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Did you notice how whenever Taylor was talking to Tennyson or watching him in the glass box, he was always kind of side-eyeing him, like looking at him just out of one eye and like kind of sidling up to the side of the case? Okay. The reason for that is, again... I didn't realize it on first watching, but then watching it again after reading this trivia, uh, they had done their first day of filming, which was the bookended scenes in the uh, the club setting. Okay. Uh, the beginning, making the bet, and then the end with the, the reveal. Mm-hmm. The second day was set to start, and uh, Franchot Tone was not on set, and they couldn't get him until finally his agent called and said he's in a clinic. Apparently, he had the left side of his face all scraped up or, or bashed up. Really? And uh, the reason that happened is still up to debate because there are two different stories. Mm-hmm. According to uh, Tone, uh, he'd been at a party and in attempting to pick a flower for his date off a bush on the terrace, he fell down a hillside and landed on the driveway of the house next door. According to Rod Serling... <laughs> Tone had approached the girl in a parking lot of a restaurant, and her boyfriend had beaten him up. Uh, Half of his face, but whatever happened, half of his face, the left side was just totally scraped raw. Um, So when they were shooting all the scenes where he was talking to um, Tennyson in the box, they had to frame it as such so you only saw the right side of his face. And uh, critics of the episode praise that as saying that was a brilliant thing because it made him seem even more devious. It really did because he he well, he, he never treated him as an equal. Yeah, yeah never really he looked him square just in the eye. The side, right? Yeah, oh, come yep. on, come just on. Speaking what about to him out of the side yeah. of his mouth. <laughs> That's cool. But that was out of necessity. That was out of necessity because apparently he was either a hopeless, clumsy romantic or a creepy perv. (laughs) (laughs) Now the two are not mutually exclusive. You know, you could people hopeless romantic. People can be more than one thing. (laughs) This is true. But yeah, watch it again and and check it out, and it's pretty interesting that you just catch all that, and then some of the shots you can see more than others, like are very obvious. Like, oh, they had to just shoot that, and others. The way they set up are really What's funny, because I did notice that, but I, like the critics, assumed that it was a directorial choice because it really enforced that idea that that he was never going to look at this guy as an equal. Mm. And then it makes it more powerful when he has to face him down in that final scene and he looks him in the eye and says, you know, you have me at a disadvantage. Nope. (laughs) Just a fucked up face. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> Any closing thoughts on our uh, Evils of Gambling trilogy here? 
I don't know. I think out of all of them, you know, Jack Ludman came out the best. Per usual. Sure, he's yeah. damned for all eternity to be up in uh, up in pool hall heaven, but... Could be worse, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You wonder if he ever made love or walked up a hill? Well, now I am. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm picturing Jack Klugman walking up a hill whilst making love. <laughs> I'll beat you this way too, Fats. I'll do them both at the same time. <laughs> That was a terrible. That was a terrible Jack Klugman. I like that. I apologize. Oh. I apologize to the spirit of Jack Klugman up in heaven. That's all right. He'll forgive you, I'm sure. Uh, so, what are we looking at for next week? Uh, next episode, next, rather. Next episode, we're gonna dive back uh, into because these were all pretty as fantastical as some of the stuff was. It was still grounded in more or less of reality. So, we're gonna go back to some sci-fi. Uh, tropes for next time and we're going to talk about uh, robots or as Rod Serling called them robots robots Robots. Uh, and we're going to talk about three episodes that uh, will have robots in them that if you didn't know better you'd think they were human alrighty my favorite kind (laughs) wait a minute that could be taken wrong (laughs) are you talking about the talking about the butts the robots (laughs) Wait, you're getting way more specific than I intended. Here's our next t-shirt. Robots. <laughs> Robots. Bouncing pickles, better than a cup of instant smile. Robots. I'm, I'm logging them all down. Okay, you keep the... And don't forget your interpretation of Jack Klugman humping his way up a, up a mountaintop. <laughs> I don't think that could be done justice on a t-shirt. That needs to like its whole one-man show. <laughs> Will work. Any uh, fun catchphrases for this weekend? Uh, well, I got nothing after that, but um, <laughs> I'd say uh, just follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SSM Podcast and send us emails of episode suggestions and your thoughts on these episodes at SSMPodcast at gmail.com. Sounds good. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. Good night, all. Cold pop!